morning, church. Uh, there are three Bible readings for today, um, two from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Our first reading is from Jeremiah, chapter 37, uh, verses 1 to 10. Uh, so please turn with me to Jeremiah, chapter 37, uh, starting from verse 1. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Konia, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jericho, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, who were besieging Jerusalem, heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent that would rise up and burn this city with fire. Today's second reading is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 17. So turn, to me, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 17, starting from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took off the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine and its branches turned toward him and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will, not, it will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on a bed where it sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me, Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? 
Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of them of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not itself, not itself lift, and not lift itself up, and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Would he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenants with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war, when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in, bringing the, in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him. Therefore, the treachery he had committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I, will, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all of the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Uh, today's last uh, Bible reading is from uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. So turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter 1, as we begin from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of God. Big warm welcome to uh, everyone here today. My name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church, uh, and so it's uh, along with Ben, who's currently at the back. Um, so big welcome, to especially those who are new with us today as well. Um, this is a sorry. Let me just get this. Okay. Um, this is a special moment as we're coming into uh, this part of the book of Ezekiel. I'm really glad to be able to share with us uh, this morning. Uh, and I know that it's a special moment too because we're all kind of regathering back in to 100% capacity. 
Uh, but one of the tough things to do as a preacher at the front here is to preach to a crowd with peop- uh, of masks on. I can't see your faces fully. I have a theory that you can tell a genuine smile from a fake smile by the eyes, so I need you to smile really big. Um, in the first service, there was a gentleman right at the back. He just kept big smiling. I could tell, I could see behind the mask, so I need you to keep doing that for me, uh, just so I get some good feedback uh, as well as I'm preaching too. Uh, a couple of quick announcements, uh, re- reiterating the announcements from before. Um, we're coming back to 100% capacity. There's a few seats that I know are still uh, a bit empty, and so we know that there are others who can be returning. So why don't you keep encouraging those who aren't here to keep making the effort to come back. Uh, church gathered together is so much better than church on your own and is a reflection of the biblical community uh, that God intends for us to have Uh, So please encourage those to come back. Uh, With the EGM, the Extraordinary General Meeting tonight, uh, that is for members, uh, and I'm excited for the possibility of um, being able to vote in, uh, I think, the first time in our church's history, uh, a third pastor. Uh, And so Randy, I've been excited for his, um, uh, um, uh, the announcement for him to take on that role. Uh, And if you are a member of the church, uh, we'd love to see you online at 8 p.m. If you're not a member, Feel free to come up and chat with me about it. I think membership is a wonderful expression of church, community, and life together. Uh, So please come and have a chat to me about that. For now, though, let me pray and ask God to bless us as we look at this word today. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your goodness and kindness to us in not only speaking to us, but preserving your word. And we thank you that this ancient word that we're about to unravel, that we're about to unfold, will speak so clearly to us today. And so we ask for your Spirit's help. Holy Spirit, help us to have ears to hear, to have hearts that will be ready to receive this, hearts that will reflect on the idols and the saviors that we have set aside, that, that are setting aside the place of Jesus in our lives. We pray that you'll help us to hear this, to know how to respond. We pray too for your Spirit's help to help me to speak clearly, and uh, uh, from this passage as I ought. And uh, we ask, Father, that you do this for your glory and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please keep uh, Ezekiel 17 open in front of you. I'll be dipping into that a bit too. Uh, My brother uh, is a minister down in Sydney, and he told me once of a preacher who was at his church years ago who at the front in the sermon boldly declared with certain confidence the date of Jesus' return. He even told his son to not pay 12 months registration on his vehicle because he believed that Jesus was imminently returning within five months. And so just pay the six months rego because you'll save a bit of money. Well, obviously, Jesus did not return. and No major harm was done by that. But the opposite was true for some of the most ardent followers of a man named Harold Camping. Uh, For those who don't remember, it was just 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago to the date, that uh, Harold Camping had made a prediction back in 2005, a bit earlier. He had predicted the return of Jesus on May 21st, 2011. Camping was the head of a very popular radio show in, in the United States, and so with the backing of his radio show and the publicity that it generated, he gained quite a few followers. Using that funds, those funds, those followers helped to place uh, all sorts of signage around the world to the point where I remember coming into church one morning and seeing a sign on Coronation Drive declaring the end of the world on May 21st, 2011. Be ready. 
Followers of camping placed all their hopes in camping's predictions, and they quit their jobs. They sold their homes. They gave away their property and their money. And in the final days before May 21st, a number of these people sat in their sold homes waiting for Jesus to return. Quite a number of his followers lost everything because they placed all of their hopes in this false prediction. Now we read a sad story like that and we think to ourselves, yeah, that's, that's quite sad. We remember that Jesus warned all of us that no one knows the, the hour and the time of his return. And so we look at that story and go, what, what silliness, what foolishness. Surely we would never put our, false, our hopes into something so false as that. Surely we wouldn't trust in something as silly like that. And yet that's exactly what Ezekiel 17 is warning us of today. It's warning us that we, can play, we all place our hopes and our trust in something. The question is, where will our hopes and trust end up? What will, or what will you are trusting in, be, will, will it be worth it? Now, before we go into that passage today, let's take a brief look at where we've been so far in the book of Ezekiel. It's been quite a journey so far. We've been uh, about five weeks in. Five weeks ago, we've started with the glorious vision of the glory of God uh, in chapter 1. And since then, it's been a very steady downward slide as we've been faced with the sin of Israel and Judah and God's judgment upon them. Four messages, five including today, which have taken us downhill down into sin, looking deeply into the rebellion of Israel, holding up a mirror to ourselves, looking at our own failings and our own weaknesses. Over the past week, I've been asking a few people how they're finding the sermon series in Ezekiel so far, and the feedback's been quite consistent. It's been long, and it's been full on. Now, give me a bit of visual feedback here. Uh, Would I be right in saying that we're all looking forward to some relief some hope, a turn, some good news. Yes? A few nods, a few smiles. Yes. The light at the end of the proverbial dark tunnel. I'm sorry to be a bearer of bad news, but we're only halfway down the slide. There's more judgment to come. There's more sin. There's more bad news to hear and receive. Now, again, the reason for all of this is quite simple. Only when we hit rock bottom where we understand how good and how wonderful and how beautiful is the grace and mercy of God. Only when we've seen how far from which we have been saved will our joy in the Saviour be magnified. So with that note out of the way, let's dive into our section. Uh, So far, the story has been pretty bleak uh, in the last 16-odd chapters. We've seen Ezekiel commissioned as the prophet of doom and gloom, being sent to a people who are not going to listen. But this commissioning is a sign that time is up for them. The time for grace and mercy has now finished. We saw then the reasons for God's wrath upon his people, how they've rebelled against him, how they've turned to trust idols. And then last week, Ben took us on the horrific tour of chapter 16 as we saw how deep and how sickening was the rebellion and the rejection of Israel to their God. Our section today is in chapters 17 to 20. We're going to focus in particular on chapter 17. Uh, And this section spells out a series of false hopes that Israel had convinced herself over. So to quickly cover what happens in the rest of the chapters, uh, working backwards from chapter 20 to our chapter uh, chapter 17, uh, this is what happens. So chapter 20, 
Uh, in chapter 20, Israel has taking, taken false comfort and assurance in their history. Surely they have a glorious history. The Exodus, the Mosaic Law, the, the conquest of the Promised Land. Surely God will not forget those triumphs. Well, chapter 20 slams this false assurance. All of these, this great history that they've had, this past, was due to God's grace alone, not their own righteousness. They could not trust the past to save them. Chapter 19 cuts the legs out of another false assurance, the belief that God would never let the Davidic kingship fail. So in a long poem, Ezekiel shuts down that idea quickly too. Instead of taking pride in that kingship, they should see it for what it really is today, a dying relic, a dynasty in ruin. Then chapter 18 takes aim at another lie. The Israelites were assuring themselves that they did not deserve this. Our forefathers were, were the ones who sinned, and yet we are being punished, the argument goes in the opening verses. So convinced of their own innocence, the people end up accusing God of being unjust. Can you imagine being that self-deluded and that self-righteous that you accuse God of being unfair? And so Ezekiel cuts that argument down. The punishment that God is pouring out on them is unquestionably deserved. Three false hopes dash. The false hope that God would not forget their history, that God would not let the Davidic kingship fail, and the lie that God was being unfair, which brings us backwards to our passage today. Another false hope that is worth focusing on in this week. See, we've heard lots about sin and judgment over the past few weeks, and now is the time to consider another area, perhaps a blind spot in many of our lives. We begin with a parable. Actually, you see it in verse 2. God says it's both a riddle and a parable. Uh, the combination of those two words, riddle and parable, tells us that this is a story that's going to have multiple layers of meaning hidden for those who have ears to hear. Uh, first, we're told, let's have a look at the surface layer and, and what's happening in the story itself. First, we're told of a beautiful great eagle. In verse 3, we read that it has great wings, long pinions, which is referring to its wingspan, and a rich plumage of feathers of many colors. It's a beautiful, gorgeous, good-looking bird. Then we're told that it flew to Lebanon, and it snaps off the cedar, uh, snaps off the top of a cedar. Lebanon was famous for their massive cedar trees. This eagle carries off that twig and plants it in a faraway land in verse 4. It is a land of trade and a city of merchants. And then he goes back and he finds a little sprout, a little seed of that land, and he plants that seed in good soil next to abundant water. That seed sprouts and it flourishes and becomes a low-spreading vine with branches, branches reaching towards the eagle and the roots firmly in place. And then a second eagle comes along. If you can't see that, it's meant to be pixelated. You know, It's not meant to look as good because this second eagle doesn't look as good as the first one. It's not as pretty as the first one. But the second eagle comes along and the vine, which had branches reaching to the first eagle, now switches and reaches towards the second eagle, reaching out to this lesser eagle. The roots underneath the soil also start moving towards the second eagle. And you see that at the end of verse 7, the vine hopes that this second eagle might water it, that it might look after it and care for it. 
And God asks big questions of this in verses 9 and 10. So have a look with me at verses 9 and 10. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he, the, the first eagle that is, not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? So you're saying here that this vine, which had grown along the ground, which was reaching out to the first eagle, which is now reaching out to the second eagle, this vine is going to perish. The fate of the vine is predictable. In wanting to gain something more from the second eagle, it will throw away everything it has been given by the first eagle. The second eagle will do nothing for it. Reaching out for this eagle will only serve to rouse the anger of the first eagle who will come and tear off its fruit and uproot it from its place. And this is going to be easy. It won't be hard for the first eagle to do this. So the vine's chosen course of action is not only foolish, but suicidal. So then in verses 12 to 15, God gives the interpretation of this parable. Each element of the parable lines up with something that is happening very clearly in their present history. So the first eagle, we're told, is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. The cedar sprig that gets ripped off the top is Jehoiachin, one of the final kings of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar carried him off and Ezekiel to Babylon. The seed that gets planted by the first eagle is Zedekiah. Zedekiah was what we call a vassal king. He was appointed as ruler of the land under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the big king and Zedekiah was his mouthpiece. The second eagle who Zedekiah, the seed, reaches out for for help is Egypt. And that is a disastrous move. Because in verse 15, God knows that Zedekiah did this. He was reaching out to Egypt because he was hoping that Egypt would send horses and a big army. But in verse 17, we see that Pharaoh would back out. He would not help Israel in war. See, the meaning of this parable becomes very clear then for the readers. Nebuchadnezzar had stormed his way through the land of Israel, taken Jehoiachin away, and Zedekiah was then put in charge under Nebuchadnezzar's watchful eye. But Zedekiah rebelled. Even though Babylon was the clear superpower of the time, Zedekiah went to the second lesser power, the disinterested Egypt, for help. But that move would backfire. I was trying to think during the week of of an illustration to get your heads into the minds of why this is so dumb. So can you imagine if Singapore was at war with China and Singapore's only, Singapore thought our biggest hope, our best hope for defeat against China is to go to Malaysia for help, right? Now, I can say that, and I got clearance from a Malaysian to be able to say that, because that, it just makes no sense, right? That's just, you don't, you don't go to Malaysia for help. They're just, they're, they're a mess of a country right now. What Zedekiah did in going to Egypt was so foolish. How did he expect Egypt to overcome the might of Babylon. Did he really think that that was going to turn out well? Before we move on, though, there's actually another layer of meaning to this parable and riddle to explore. You have a look at uh, the little grenade that verse 19 that dro- that God drops in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, 
Surely it is my oath that Zedekiah despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. God says that at a deeper level, this whole parable is an analogy for his relationship with Israel. See, Zedekiah had a covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, and he broke that. And if Zedekiah's abandonment of this relatively prosperous situation in favor of the Egyptian option, if that was foolish and a suicidal idea, then take a step back for a moment and have a think about Israel's long history of rebellion against their covenantal God and how foolish and suicidal that was. Zedekiah's revolt wasn't just against a powerful earthly king. It was a revolt against the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. And so because of this alliance, because Zedekiah and Israel put their hope outside of God himself, judgment would fall on them. Have a look at verse 20 to 21. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. And God dashes the false hopes of Israel. They trusted in their alliance rather than in God. And so God will bring upon them, down on them, all of this judgment. Yet another reason for judgment upon them. Now, God's message to the Israelites at this point is that they should not place their trust in the things of this world. I want to pause for a moment and go onto a, a tangent for us and ask us the question, because that's an important message for us today. We need to hear that as well. Because just as Israel trusted in her alliance with Egypt, do we tend to trust in other things than God to bring us security and safety? Another name for this is to have a functional saviour, right? It's another form of idolatry, but it's a much subtler one. Uh, what do I mean by functional saviour? If, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've been going to church for any length of time, and if you trust, if you say that you believe and trust Jesus, then this is one of the dangers that may, you may find creeping into your heart. And the danger is this, that with your lips and your head, you believe and you say that Jesus is your only saviour that Jesus is the one true Lord, but in your heart, there is something else. There is something else that you find your true security and comfort in. See, Jesus may be your theological saviour, but this is, there is something else in your heart that is your functional saviour. It functions as the true saviour of your life. Right? Functional saviour is a, a competing source of identity. It, it sidelines Jesus as the main source of who we are. You depend on it and less on Jesus to bring you safety and significance in life. Now, here's the subtle danger. Right? Functional saviours are idols. But when we think of idols, we often tend to just think of them as bad things. But the truth is that it almost never is the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect it to bring us security, to satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. 
And so the hope in our heart shifts. Anything can serve as a functional saviour, especially the very best things of life. Now, I know some of us struggle this, with this in profound ways. Others struggle less so. And still there are others who struggle powerfully but don't realise it. So how can we tell what our functional saviours are? Let me suggest three ways. One way, the first way, I'll give lots of examples, tease that out, and then give a further two. So the first way, the first way to find out and to consider what your functional saviour is, is to look at what Israel are doing in this passage. They saw an oppressive enemy, something big and fearful, and they looked somewhere other than God to find security, to find safety. They thought an alliance with Egypt would bring them safety. So a good place to start is to ask ourselves, what am I placing my safety and my security in? Again, with our lips and our heads, maybe even in Bible study during the week, we will say that Jesus is our saviour, but what is it that our hearts will turn to? If I checked your Google searches for this week, what would it reveal? Maybe it's the stock market app that you look at every day. If, If the numbers go up, then you can rest easy at night. But if the numbers dip, your anxiety goes up. And maybe it's the family budget. You anxiously check the savings and where the savings are headed. You're worried every time a big expense happens and then when there's an emergency, you feel that pinch of the savings taking a hit. But as long as the total figure is growing, then you feel secure. Maybe it's in having a relationship. So if you're single, maybe it's that strong desire in your life to have a life partner. Your imagination drifts there constantly and your prayers begin to center around it. Only if you had a relationship would you then feel safe and secure. If you're married, this can still have an impact because maybe it's the desire that you just want your partner to be someone better. You're a little bit disappointed. Someone who is, you want someone who is more loving, more humble, more patient, more initiative-taking, right? Once you have that kind of a person to live with and be married with, then your desire is fulfilled, and then you have what you hope for, and then you feel secure, you feel safe. You have a think. What is, what is that something that if I took it away, you would feel totally lost? Not just in a physical sense, like being lost while you're driving and you're not sure where you are, but in a deep, heartfelt way. If I I took away your job, if I took away your university degree and what you were studying, would you feel lost because you no longer had the esteem of being able to study in Australia at UQ doing dentistry or whatever? Would you feel insecure that you had lost the high-paying, high-flying career? If I took away your house and you had to rent for the rest of your life, would you feel insecure? So have a think about what you would fear to lose because if you did, it would rob you of safety and security. Number two, another way to work out your functional saviour is to have a think about your prayer life. Have, Have a think about what you've been praying and working towards. If you're asking for something and you you don't get it and you respond with, ah, well, no worries, no big deal, life goes on, well, that is not your functional saviour. But when you pray and work for something and you don't get it and you respond in rage or in deep despair, you get defensive 
then you may have found your real saviour. Like Jonah, you are angry enough to die. And carried from that, third test, and another test is to think about your strongest emotions. When you get into that zone of anger, of being unforgiving, ask yourself, what is it that you need so much right now? What is being held back that I, I think I must have it if I'm to feel complete or if I'm to be a person of value and worth? A deep anger, deep emotions are a symptom of deeper longing. It might be the desire for comfort above all things. And so someone has made our lives harder and we get angry at them. Our anger may be driven by a deep need for control. Your functional savior is the control that you're able to exercise over your life. And when, you get, when it gets blocked, you get bitter. When, when things get out of hand, you get annoyed. The point in saying all this is that functional saviors, false hopes, are like Egypt for Israel. They cannot deliver. They may promise a lot and we may hope for big returns. They may promise you safety and security and rest. But at the end of the day, they cannot deliver. They flat out are unable to deliver on our ultimate need. So as we read Ezekiel's judgment upon Israel in this passage, it would do us very well to reflect upon our own lives. Do we see false hope in our own lives as well? Do we recognize the functional saviors who are sidelining Jesus in our lives? And when you do start to recognize it, if you do start to see the light upon them, what should you do? There are a few things that we have to remember uh, to do, and uh, a few of these are general. Four of these are general, and the final one will bring us back into the passage in Ezekiel 17. So let me suggest four general ones in particular first. Number one, remember that spotting your false hopes and functional saviors is half the battle won. Remember that, right? Think about it. If, you, if an enemy is after you and you are asleep, well, then there's no battle. You're dead. But if you're awake and you spot the enemy, at least the battle can begin. Uh, on Wednesday night, I think I can share this, on Wednesday night, uh, my neighbours, Andrew and Mel, they had a big fire at their place. Now, they were all awake when it happened. They were having dinner. They heard this massive roaring sound from the back. The, uh, the gas bottle uh, on their barbecue had caught fire. It's pretty much destroyed their patio now. They were awake when that happened. In the wake of that, my family and I, we sat down and we went, we better upgrade our smoke alarms, all right? And then I realized that there's new legislation coming in and it's going to be way more expensive than I expected. But we're going to do it, all right? You don't muck around with that kind of stuff. You don't go cheap with smoke alarms, all right? Why? Why, why not go cheap with smoke alarms? Because if you're asleep and there's a fire, you need something to wake you up. Because once you're awake, then you can be alert to the danger. For those who uh, have started to go through the real change Bible studies, it'd be good to reflect too on what are the roots of those idols? What what fear may be lurking there? What hopes and desires are at the center? Because identifying these things is half the battle won. Second, unmask these idols and bring them to the cross. Because recall the gospel. Speak it to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Every now and then I cheekily ask people, who's your favorite preacher, Ben or I? And most people say me because I'm asking the question. (laughs) You dare not say Ben in front of me because then my heart will break. (laughs) 
And then I actually, when, when people tell me what the, who their favorite preacher is, I actually say, no, I'm not, or no, Ben is not. Your favorite preacher is you. Because you will preach sermons to yourself all week. You will hear yourself preaching to yourself way more than I will ever get to preach to you. So preach to yourself the gospel. Because if you keep preaching the gospel to yourself, there is power there to remember that Jesus has forgiven your sins. To remember that you are united to Christ. And being united to Christ means that that idol has, has broken, no, the power of that idol is broken. Right? You have no obligation towards that idol to serve it. Remember that Jesus is the only one who can and does fulfill your hopes and desires that the idol offers as well. Where your idol will only ever let you down, Jesus will only ever satisfy. And you need to keep preaching that to yourself. Number three, bring your hopes and idols to the light. Speak about them with others. Right? Your spouse, your family, your friends here at church. Exposing your weaknesses and flaws to a loving, supportive church community that will lovingly hold you accountable. Give permission to people to ask you about these things and often. Because if you are awake to the enemy in your life, and then having others to help keep you awake and encourage you in the fight will help. Number four, if you recognize that you're putting your hopes in things other than in Jesus, then return to the true hope that you have in Jesus. Fill your heart and your mind with Jesus through his word, through prayer, through meditating on scripture, through singing songs of worship. Our hearts are captured by functional saviors. If your heart is captured by a functional savior, then let your heart be recaptured by the beauty and the glory of Christ. And finally, believe the promise of restoration. We come back into our passage, we have to note that God does an amazingly surprising thing at the end of Ezekiel 17. Uh, We've seen this before in previous passages so far, but again, it's worth noting that every time these things come up, they defy logic. At this point, all of this judgment, what they've done, how they've trusted their alliance and the judgment that's fallen on them, full stop. That makes sense. What God offers next in Ezekiel 17, verse 22 to 24, defies that logic. So going back to the imagery of the parable at the start of our passage, God promises to take another sprig, a small little offshoot from the top of that big cedar tree. He will take this tender little twig and he will plant it on a high mountain, a place of true security. And listen to what God does to that little offshoot in chapter 17, verse 23 to 24. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make the high, tree, high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Do you notice how God takes the initiative in all of that? Uh, this little shoot will be able to grow into a massive notable cedar in, all of its, in its own right. All sorts of birds will come and find shelter in the branches of that tree. When you're reading about what the kingdom of God is like and how it's like a mustard seed that grows into a great tree and all the birds of the, 
heavens come and find their nest and shade and rest in that shelter, that's picking up this image. And importantly there in verse 24, all of this is done so that all the trees of the field, everyone on the world will know that I am Yahweh. Yahweh is the one responsible for the judgment of his people. Yahweh is the one responsible for bringing down kingdoms and he is the one responsible for growth and renewal. Egypt could do none of that. False hopes and functional saviors can do none of this. True hope is found in Israel's true saviour, Yahweh himself. All of our hopes and needs need to be placed here. Hope that God will act to rescue and restore his people. Now for us sitting here today, all of those hopes are fulfilled in the gospel. God has come in the flesh. Yahweh has come to rescue and restore a people to himself. Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus has come to die for the penalty of our sins. He has come to turn away God's wrath and judgment. And if we believe this and trust this, then he will save us from the wrath of God to come. Our hope for life, for safety, for security, for significance can be found nowhere else than in Jesus and what he has done for us. We have new life in a restored relationship with God. We have eternal safety and security in Christ, no matter what happens to us in this world. We have profound significance and a new identity in Jesus. The gospel's good news is that the hopes of restoration in Ezekiel, in here, chapter 17, and throughout the entire Bible, fully realized in the coming of Jesus. So placing your hopes elsewhere in life for safety and security doesn't make sense. This is also why the New Testament in a number of places encourages and warns to not shift our hopes away from Jesus. The Apostle Peter put it this way, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see how Peter is encouraging his readers there? He says, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the privileges that we have in Jesus, keep living a godly life. Keep your hopes set on the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Idolatry, false hopes, functional saviors, all of these things are conforming your passions to your former ignorances. That is to be like the world. There's a bit of a duality there too, isn't there? Either you're setting your hopes on Christ or you're being conformed to the world. You're either setting all your hopes on Jesus or you're shifting those hopes somewhere else. Why would we? Setting your hopes on Jesus looks so different to the false hopes of life. Instead of the anxiety that we have about money, there'll be generosity in our giving. Instead of fear of missing out on relationships, we are freed to sacrificially love everyone around us. Instead of anger, there'll be gentleness and humility and love. What kind of life would you prefer? 
So friends, today is a good day to assess where our hope is, what false hopes we are clinging to, what functional saviors we are trusting in. Will we recognize that they will not deliver on their promises? And will we instead set our hopes on Christ alone? Let me pray. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, thank you for this word, for pointing out to us again the idols in our hearts, but to do so in ways that trips us, that is subversive, that gets under our skin. Father, expose those functional saviors in our lives, those things that we are placing our actual trust and hope in. Help us to see them for what they are. They might be good things, but help us to put them in their proper place, to repent to trust your son Jesus alone, to live a life not filled with anxiety or anger or despair, but to, be, to, to live a life trusting you, hoping in you, and a life filled with generosity of love and compassion. Help us to do these things, Father, to turn away from our false hopes for our joy and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen.